Well, let me pray for us uh, before we read God's word together. Loving Heavenly Father, fill us with your spirit this morning that we uh, may more fully grasp, understand uh, the love that you have shown us in Christ. Through the pages uh, of your word this morning and through uh, this sermon, we pray uh, that we would, each one of us, see the Lord Jesus more clearly and love him more dearly. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So carrying on, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, starting again at 29, verse 29, through to verse 41, uh, page 1097, picking up in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, can you think of any particular moments in history that changed the world? There's loads of them, aren't there? When we sort of dig through the history books, one that many of us here lived through, uh, that really marked a new era, it's often said 9-11, marked a dramatic change in the Western world, that a terror attack on the United States caught live on television. It's arguable, isn't it, that it changed the world, not least with subsequent wars and subsequent terrorist incidents. But the effects can also be felt sort of every time you go through airport security now as well. It changed the world. Probably less of a dramatic effect, but 
Uh, we probably, many of us, remember uh, where we were when we heard the news that Queen Elizabeth II had died. And the beginning of a new age began, the era of King Charles III. A long time ago when uh, monarchs held significantly more power, that kind of change would have brought a far more dramatic effect to everyday life. For example, during the Reformation, if your monarch was a Protestant, then everyone would become Protestants. And if your monarch was a Catholic, all the churches would change back to Catholicism again. Well, today, we're looking at a monumental event, a world-changing event. We're looking at Peter's explanation of an event that marked a new age, a new era, and the radical change that it caused in the individual lives there and subsequently all throughout the world and throughout history. And we'll see that this passage holds the answer to what the very purpose of the world is, the trajectory of all of history and the difference that it makes for our life today. So first, we get this announcement of a new age. In verses 14 to 21, you can follow along inside the service sheets, the outline there. Verse 4, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem. This is how Peter begins his sermon at Pentecost. Today, I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon about an event uh, that we looked at previously in the book of Acts. Uh, He is saying, listen up. Peter gets all their attention and says, remember how after Jesus rose from the dead, appeared and taught the apostles, he ascended and told them to wait in Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit came, filled up the apostles, and they were supernaturally able to speak languages to proclaim the gospel. We're picking up just after that event. And this is where Peter's explanation begins. You can remember some of the reactions of the crowd to this Pentecost event, it's called. Uh, You can uh, look back at them. Some of them were amazed and perplexed. And verse 12, though some of them mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. Effectively saying, these apostles who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they're drunk. That's what some of them were mocking and saying. And so this is how Peter begins his sermon, addressing those reactions. Look at verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Essentially saying it's far too early in the day for anybody to be this Uh, behaving like this. Even the biggest drunks wouldn't be on it like this in the morning. No. Peter says, let me tell you what's happening here. Remember the prophet Joel. In the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this is what he predicted. So Peter explains what Luke described in the previous passage. It's a new age. He says, doesn't he, In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter saying, the new age has begun. This is the last days. It's the age of the spirit. The age between Jesus Christ ascending into heaven and between him coming again as judge. It's in this age that God says, I'll pour out my spirit 
on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18, even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Notice what God says he is doing here. Pouring out. It's not a drizzle or a light glazing. It is an abundant torrent. And notice who it's landing on. Not just the special elite people. And not just the extra holy do-gooders. No. Sons, daughters, young, old, male servants, female servants. It's not a promise of universal universalarity saying uh, everyone now has the spirit of Christ living in them. It's a promise of no distinction. Every type of person can have the spirit of Christ in them. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, who you think you are. So here today, 21st century London, know that we can have the spirit of Christ living in us. This is actually what happens when you become a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Spirit moves into your life. So when you trust that Jesus' death on the cross means that uh, all your wrongdoing and your sin can be forgiven, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This uh, same Holy Spirit that Joel prophesied would be poured out God moves into your life. Your loving relationship with God is restored. Your life is on back on the purpose, the track that it was made for. Now, there are a couple of questions that we might have about this, particularly uh, with this emphasis that there seems to be on prophecy in this section. Joel seems to be promising, and Peter backing it up, that everyone's going to be prophesying. dreams, visions. What are we to make of that? I think uh, most take in in this passage that prophecy is a sort of umbrella term for uh, the other things going on. So the dreaming dreams and having visions, uh, Joel is essentially saying everyone will prophesy. And it's this universal gift of the Spirit to all kinds of people will lead to this ministry of prophecy done by all kinds of people. Of people. Everyone is going to be doing it, Peter is saying. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, hang on, you're telling me that I need to be prophesying. Uh, Does this mean getting the tea leaves out? Is it a sort of Professor Trelawney from Harry Potter getting the, the trance prophecy going? Or maybe you're thinking now, yes, this is what we need to be doing. Every single one of us ask for more dreams, more visions. Bring it on. We can see, though, that there's answers to these two thoughts by asking just exactly what is prophecy in this passage, in, in its essence. And I think in its essence, prophecy in this passage is God speaking, making himself known by his word. So the Old Testament prophets received and spoke the word of God, and they were empowered by God's spirit to do so. And God would raise up individual people to have an office and a gift of prophecy. But here, 
Uh, we see that there, there was an Old Testament expectation that in uh, the new covenant, this new age that Peter is announcing, uh, that you didn't need to be special and especially raised up. No, in the new age of the Spirit, to be able to know God, you had God uh, living in you yourself. And so Jeremiah 31, 34 says, they will all know me. And the New Testament authors show that this is fulfilled in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, you yourselves have been taught by God. 1 John 2, 27, his anointing teaches you about all things. So all knowledge of God now comes through the revelation of Christ, through Jesus, through his spirit. And this makes sense of why all different types of people, all flesh, are receiving his spirit. Because all different types of people are now able to know God. So if you know Christ here today, in this sense, you are a prophet. Because you know Christ. You have his spirit living in you, and you're able to make him known. The next bit of Joel's prophecy, Peter reads, is in verses 19 to 21 here. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? There's blood, fire, smoke. Uh, Verse 19, darkness and moon to blood. Verse 20, uh, it could be a description of what is happening on Good Friday at the crucifixion in Luke 23, where the sky goes black. But it could also be an Old Testament metaphor for historical upheaval. And the uh, Old Testament prophecies uh, to talk about the beginning of a, a new age or particular historical, social, political revolution, they would use this dramatic, apocalyptic imagery. So Joel could have been predicting here that this is a radical turning point in history. A new age has come. The Spirit of God now lives in his people. In the time between the day of Pentecost and the day of the Lord, when he comes again, with this new age comes a new opportunity, doesn't it? Can you spot what that opportunity is? It's in verse 21. Where everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the new age. Now, you might be thinking, hang on a second. I don't need to be saved. I think, actually, I'm fine. But the hard-hitting truth of the Bible is that we do need a savior. None of us are perfect. And our imperfection separates us from God, who wants a loving relationship with us. And so we need our imperfection, our sin, the Bible calls it. We need it forgiven. It is the new age that we live in, the new age of the forgiveness of sins. And so we'll see what it looks like to respond to that offer when we look at the response to this sermon from the first hearers. But it's this event, the new age, that means the world is never the same again. Because the followers of Christ have God 
living in them by his spirit. But our next section reveals there is a new king. A new king. Peter declares that Jesus is the king. In fact, the whole sermon really focuses on Jesus. But this section begins with verse 22, focusing on his life. Look what Peter says with me. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Jesus, a true human, was accredited by God through supernatural acts, miracles that amazed and signified, showed his very divine nature, that he himself was God, and his ability to provide true, everlasting life. So when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and we see him doing miracles, Peter is saying, read that and understand who he is. He is God. God, in fact, proves that who Jesus is by doing all these miracles. Moving then on to his death, verse 23, Jesus was delivered up and crucified by lawless men. But it was all part of God's definite plan. You see, God's justice demanded retribution for our wrongdoing and sin. But Jesus paid the ultimate price making forgiveness and reconciliation with God possible. The crowd here, Peter says, you crucified him. Now, there may have been some people listening to his sermon uh, in that first century uh, context where they were present at the trial of Jesus, and they did remember it, and they were there, and they know absolutely everything about it. But we know from uh, earlier in the book of Acts that lots of people would have traveled to Jerusalem for a particular festival at this time. And he's speaking to a great big crowd of people. And he says, you crucified him. Well, what does that mean? That he's accusing them all. They weren't all the ones who drove nails into his hands. They weren't all the ones who hurled insults at him as he uh, died on the cross. Peter means it is because of sin that Jesus died. And so Peter is accusing them. And the shocking truth of it is that he, when we read these words, accuses us here today. You see, we, each one of us, are sinners and need forgiveness. The forgiveness that was bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross. You might think, well, hang on a second, I'm not that bad. You you can't really stand here and accuse me of uh, it being my fault that uh, two millennia ago Jesus was crucified. Imagine it just for a second, though, uh, that uh, you lived your life with a tape recorder around your neck. But rather than recording the sort of ambient sounds and a lot of your voice going through the ages, it records your thought life. Every single thought you've ever had, even the ones that you don't want anyone to know about. Now, every single thought recorded on that tape recorder 
Imagine then that tape recorder is sent to everybody you know. Would you want your boss to listen to it? Uh, would you want the colleague who needs everything explaining twice to them to listen to that? What about your parents, your friends, your children, your spouse? Every such thought that doesn't love God or our neighbor, every such action, word, deed, deserves justice. And so what Peter says to the crowd, he could say to us today, this Jesus, you crucified him. You killed him because of your sin. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price for your sin. Jesus paid it all. But Peter moves on. Death could not hold Jesus because he was the only one whose tape recorder would have been completely clear, absolutely fine. Everyone would have been fine listening to it because he was completely sinless, holy, and perfect. So you see, uh, God then raises Jesus from the dead. Peter quotes Psalm 16, which he says, uh, King David, the uh, ancient Israelites king, the greatest one who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before the time that Peter is preaching. He says, Peter, uh, he says, King David wrote this about Jesus. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says, it's about the resurrection. Verse 31, he he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter's taken this crowd through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, the resurrection, it's not mere legend. It's not a, a sort of ancient myth. Peter says, we, and other witnesses here, We saw him raised again to new life. He appeared to us, walked around with us, ate food in front of us. He elaborates, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The consequence of death had no grip on Jesus due to his perfect, holy, sinless nature. Peter says this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus is the risen Lord and King. And so today you might be slightly skeptical about this. 2,000 years ago, my sin caused Jesus to die and somehow God made him alive. We'd love to help you to uh, look through those questions, question what you're skeptical about, and see Jesus Uh, for yourself through the pages of his word. Uh, Do talk to me afterwards if you'd like to find out how we do that. It usually involves uh, meeting up and going through one of those eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and death. Peter then moves on and explains that Jesus was exalted as king. Not an ordinary king, but the king of the entire universe, surpassing even King David. His ascension, his uh, being taken up into heaven that we saw at the beginning of Acts was accompanied by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit 
uh, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110. And so Jesus had already applied uh, what Peter quotes to himself in, in Mark 12, Luke 20, and Paul and the other authors in the, in the New Testament apply it to Jesus as well. But Peter emphasizes being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So Jesus ascended in the heavenly places, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Saying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you've witnessed here, it signifies as Jesus' exaltation, his godly, kingly authority. It's like a victorious king sharing the spoils of victory. Jesus the King, who pours out the Spirit on this new age. And Peter says, I want you to be certain of it. Jesus is the true King, the anointed Savior. God has made him both Lord and Christ, confirming his kingship through the resurrection. Jesus now, he reigns over everything, even though it was their actions that led to his death and his crucifixion. And so Peter wraps up this little section with let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. Christ being the title in Greek for Messiah, the the prophesied savior and king of God's people, God's anointed savior. It was always going to be the case. Peter draws on these uh, Old Testament quotations to show that it was always going to be this way. And this, Jesus' exaltation confirmed in reality uh, what was always true by right, that Jesus is the risen king, the ruler of the new age, ruling over all creation. And it leads us to think about what are we supposed to do about it? If there is a, a new age that we're living in, And there is a a new king uh, ruling and reigning and pouring out his spirit on his people. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, let's look at the response of the listeners to this first sermon. When they heard these words, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? This is what we call the conviction of sin, conviction of the spirit through the preaching of God's word. Peter's highlighted Jesus' life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and the consequences of their sin to them. And they're cut to the heart. They've seen it clearly for the very first time. Maybe perhaps that's you here today. Seeing clearly the crucified saviour there because of your sin, who was risen and offers true and perfect life and the pouring out of his spirit. Well, there are two commands here and two promises in our response. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The commands then, repent and be baptized. So first, repent. Repent means to do a turning away. Turning away, in this context, from sin. It's a U-turn. 
And it means we turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. So uh, where once we may have been living with something else in the very center of our life. It could be any good thing, couldn't it? Our relationships, our money, our success, our children, whatever it is that we have been living for. And whatever it is, it's usually something to do with ourselves. Peter says, repent, turn away. Now we turn away from that and we turn to Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And in doing so, all those good things, you know, relationships, job, money, they get reordered. Jesus is in the center circle. You turn to him and you follow him. And so then you live in light of him and his truth. And those good things become reordered. Jesus as the king. And we go his direction. It's the transforming effect of the new king sending his spirit in this new age. It would have been nice, though, wouldn't it, if Peter had simply said something like, when asked, what shall we do? If he'd said, I tell you what, 10 push-ups and 10 prayers, and maybe just try and be a bit nicer. We could probably tick that off every single day, and then we wouldn't have to worry about... Well, how do we live the rest of our life? We look at our calendar, we see the tick, 10 push-ups, 10 prayers, all good. We don't need to think about how we live through the rest of the day. But because Jesus completely settles the debt of sin, completely deals with it, there's nothing that we can earn on a sort of daily to-do list to make ourselves right with God. We can't get anything from God by doing We have to simply say, I follow Jesus because of what he has done. So we repent. And it's why as Christians, if we uh, are hearing this again and thinking, well, hang on a second, I know all of this. We repent again and again and again, trusting in Christ. It's a continual practice. And while repentance and faith is sufficient for all our sin, past, present, and future, if we aren't in the practice of continually actually making that deliberate effort to turn to Christ, it would all be too easy to turn away, wouldn't it? And if this is your first time hearing this this morning, let me encourage you, make it your response. Make it your response. Repent. Turn away from sin and follow Jesus. Put your faith in him, the son of God, God himself, who did really live, Peter says, was really crucified, really raised, was really buried. He really rose and he really is the ascended king. All so that your sins and wrongdoing could be forgiven. It would look something like praying to God and saying sorry for your sin. Thanking him for for sending Jesus so that your sin can be forgiven. And trusting in Christ and and asking the Holy Spirit to help you to live for Jesus for this day forward. Praise God for this wonderful plan, this wonderful uh, command to repent. Next, there's be baptized. Be baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, This is a, a sort of clear public token of repentance and belief in Christ. And so we carry out this practice, even uh, 
on the barge, 21st century Britain. It's a, a sort of uh, a washing sign that says, I've trusted in Christ. Uh, baptizing those who, who put their faith in Jesus, uh, going under the water, uh, signifying dying with Christ, being washed of all sin, and rising out of water, showing that we're united with Christ in his resurrection, showing that we have a new life in him. By being baptized in the name of Christ, we acknowledge we want to live for him, under his authority, acknowledging him, subscribing to all he teaches, serving him, and trusting in all that he has done. So if you aren't baptized here today, we'd love you to to have that done. We'd love you to uh, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want to help you do that. Baptism is the natural first step on a Christian's journey. So when we turn from sin to Christ, the first step should be let's get baptized in our local church. Take that step. And if you have been baptized, then ask the Holy Spirit to help you to live in light of the promises made at your baptism. That you would turn to Christ every single day, remembering the grace that means you're united with Christ in his death, his resurrection, and look forward to worshipping him face to face. Those are the two commands, and they come with two promises as well. So two promises. Every, the first is the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? Every sin ever committed by you, every sin that you will ever commit, you receive forgiveness of them when you accept Christ. Peter's very clear, isn't he? That the crowd, this is a promise for them. It's not just for the apostles, not just for people we look up to, the ones who give most to charity or anything like that, live the best lives. No. Peter says, it's for you. It's clear uh, that they weren't looking for the best or the particular elites. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 who Peter had preached to and accused of crucifying Jesus, guilty due to their sin. The promise is that with repentance comes a completely clean slate. Not just clean, completely new. If it is your sin holding Jesus to the cross, it is his holiness that you receive in its place. You know, someone from the uh, midweek ministry here uh, at the barge was telling me recently how it felt knowing that he was forgiven of all his sin for the first time. He said the first time that he trusted in that promise for himself, it was like he'd been walking around his whole life in black and white, and suddenly everything was colorful. He said it was like a real freedom, like a, imagine a burden of sin weighing us down, becoming all-consuming, viewing all of the lens through our shame or guilt. This is a promise that if we cast our burden on Jesus, we receive complete forgiveness, full, complete forgiveness of sins. If you're thinking today, I can't really think of anything that I need forgiveness from. I'm not that bad, really. Certainly not as bad as some people. But don't we see that if Christ isn't the identity and source of all meaning for us, the object of all our worship, then we're not living for him. We're living for something else. Effectively saying to our creator, we want nothing to do with you. Peter says, you need to be forgiven. 
Turn and be forgiven today. The gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Spirit, verse 38. The Holy Spirit, it's God himself, brings our dead, sinful hearts to life. He moves in, lives within us, unites us to Christ, and transforms every area of our life to look more like Jesus. So today, let's be thankful for God's glorious Spirit moving into our hearts. And let's live in light of that reality. Because when the Spirit moves in, it means we have to change. Not out of a spirit of rule-keeping or some kind of people-pleasing, but a spirit of love. I've told this story before, but a friend of mine growing up, he was renowned for having the sort of legendary house parties, the sort of thing that you might hear about in a local newspaper. He loved doing them, and they were crazy. But then uh, one day, his grandmother, getting very elderly and frail, moved into their house. And from that day, the house parties stopped. Not because he didn't want to do them anymore, but because he actually loved his grandmother more than he loved throwing a mental house party. You can think of it like the Holy Spirit moving into our lives. We have a greater love living in us than all other things. And so when we turn, we turn out not out of obligation, but out of love. And the Spirit gives us strength to do that. So if you look at the commands of repent and be baptized, and you think, how could I possibly do that? How could I possibly follow Christ? It looks impossible to me. The gift of the Holy Spirit gives us strength and helps us to love God more than we love our sin. These promises are for you. Peter says, therefore, you and your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. It's not just for the apostles. It's not for the already baptized, or, uh, but it's for those listening, for their children, for all subsequent generations, all who are far off, not just the Jewish diaspora among the nations, but even the Gentiles, those from non-Jewish backgrounds. He says it's for you. Today, 21st century, Canary Wharf, Isle of Dogs, Mile End, wherever you're from, here today, 21st century London, this is for you. So what will your response be? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, verse 40. Commit to Jesus. Join his community, the church. The response from Peter's hearing that sermon was extraordinary, wasn't it? 3,000 people accepted his message and received the forgiveness of sins. They were baptized. And it was all from the preaching of this word. We'll go into... Uh, see in the rest of the book of Acts how this movement, beginning here, with Peter's explanation of the new age and the new king, the new age of the spirit poured out, the newly exalted king, the response of repentance and faith, being baptized and receiving the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, transforms the entire world. Let's take a moment, reflect on what we've heard, and then we'll pray together.